Hi everyone, it's Ed Chang. Before we get to this episode with Megan Ryan, hosted by Alex Nunn, I wanted to mention that the 2020 Evidence Summer Workshop will be held at Vanderbilt on August 6th through 7th. Alex and I, along with Julia Simon Kerr and Maggie Whitlin, started this workshop last year for evidence researchers to share their ideas during the summer months. We had a great workshop last summer, and we're looking forward to doing it again. Paper proposals are due May 1st, and more details in the call for papers can be found on the Excited Utterance website or at evidenceworkshop.com. Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 87, Megan Ryan, Secret Conviction Programs. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. On our podcast today is Megan Ryan, the Associate Dean for Research and the Altshuler Distinguished Teaching Professor at SMU Dedman School of Law. Megan's new paper, Secret Conviction Programs, suggests that judges and juries across the country are identifying, convicting, and sentencing criminal defendants based on so-called secret evidence. That is, her paper suggests that criminal defendants are increasingly facing computer programs, algorithms, and source codes in the courtroom, but courts have generally denied their requests for full discovery of those programs. What has resulted, therefore, as you will hear today, is a problem of constitutional proportions. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. So your paper begins by suggesting that judges and even some juries are convicting defendants based on so-called secret evidence. It's a really kind of fascinating claim. But first things first, let's build up to kind of your paper's main contributions by just defining terms. So what do you mean by secret evidence? Sure. When I'm referring to secret evidence, what I mean is evidence that's built on or generated by computer programs including their underlying algorithms and source codes, and they're generally undiscoverable by criminal defendants. So because of judges limiting discovery orders and the complex nature of this evidence, criminal defendants generally can't examine how these results are produced, and therefore they generally don't have much of a chance to challenge these results, which can have some really significant consequences, especially in the criminal conviction context where so much is at stake. So your paper first jumps in to discuss predictive programs. So generally, how are prosecutors and even some judges here using computer programs or algorithms in their respective roles? Well, judges, parole boards, and even police departments are increasingly using computer programs to try to improve the way that they work. So, for example, judges are using risk assessments to help them determine whether to grant bail in particular cases. Uh, They're also using risk assessments to help them in sentencing defendants. And parole boards are similarly using risk assessment tools to determine whether granting parole is appropriate in particular cases. Some of the more basic risk assessment tools are really just checklists. But the more advanced ones are computerized, and for the most part, the algorithms and source codes that are powering them are kept secret. 
Now, beyond these uses of risk assessment tools, even some police departments are getting in on the action and using prediction tools to determine where and when crimes are likely to take place so that they can allocate their resources accordingly. So what are a few examples of the actual computer programs that prosecutors and judges are using? And what work are those programs doing? Well, the primary example of a computerized prediction tool is something called COMPASS which stands for Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. It was developed by a company called North Point. Now, Compass is used to predict an individual's chance of recidivating. As you can imagine, this question can be relevant to bail, sentencing, or even parole decisions. In the context of predictive policing technology, two examples are PredPol and Hunch Lab, which both attempt to predict where and when crimes will take place so that police departments can more effectively allocate their resources to prevent or otherwise address crime. So these are just a few examples. Why are we seeing an increased reliance on these computer programs? You know, why, why are the proponents of the programs saying they're normatively desirable? Gosh, there are a lot of reasons why these risk assessment programs and the computerized versions of them are alluring for criminal justice actors. A significant criticism of many decisions made within the criminal justice system is that they're arbitrary or some similarly situated defendants are being treated differently from other defendants. So, for example, when a defendant gets bail in a case, or whether bail is set at $10,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars, all this might depend on what judge a particular defendant draws. It also might depend upon whether that judge happens to be in a good mood when he's sentencing or setting bail. And it could also depend on whether the judge is biased, either consciously or unconsciously, against the defendant based upon, for example, the defendant's race or the defendant's religion or something else. So by automating decisions like bail or sentencing or even parole, or by at least partially automating these decisions, the thought is that some of this arbitrariness or unequal treatment can then be removed from the process. So with automation, these decisions might be less likely to be based upon bias or luck, and thus they should be fairer. So that's just one reason. Another reason is that jurisdictions are moving toward using these tools for efficiency reasons. Police departments are a really good example of this. If police departments can effectively predict where and when crimes are going to occur, then they can use their very limited resources to, for example, station more police officers in that area or take some other steps to prevent or reduce crime in these areas. Of course, I, I think it's no stretch to say that not everyone has been thrilled with the role of computer programs and algorithms in the criminal justice system. So if you would, walk us through some of the more salient criticisms here. Sure, that's very true. There are several criticisms of these programs, especially where the prediction tools are automated, such as with Compass. And Compass itself has really received its fair share of criticism. One criticism is that biases are built into the program. So in particular, there's a concern that the program is racist itself. So though it seems that race is not explicitly taken into account in determining a criminal defendant's risk of recidivism in the program, apparently some of the factors used to calculate defendants' risks are proxies for race. And this criticism is regularly levied against these prediction tools more generally. So for example, Prediction might 
take into account a defendant's educational level or marital status or criminal history. These aren't questions about a defendant's race, but they may very well correlate with race. And so this translates into these programs generally penalizing defendants based upon race. Another criticism of these programs is that they're not very accurate anyway. One study by ProPublica found that Compass was not much more accurate than a simple flip of a coin. And relatedly, these prediction programs aren't individualized. They're predictions based upon general information about an individual, but they don't take into account many of the defendant's particular characteristics, which could also contribute to whether the defendant's going to recidivate, for example. Now, all of these are problems with relying on these programs, but we have to remember also that the alternative is a decision made by a judge who could very well be biased or inaccurate himself. Shifting gears now kind of away from the context of predictive programs, how have computer programs played a role in convicting defendants? You know, what do the programs look like in the conviction context? Sure. In this paper, I focus on what I call conviction programs. By this, I'm referring to computer programs, including their underlying algorithms and source codes, that are used to convict criminal defendants. So think about the last time you were pulled over in your car by a police officer. That police officer probably used a radar gun or something like it to assess your speed. Or think about a police officer pulling over a suspected drug driver and having that driver blow into a breathalyzer machine. That breathalyzer machine provides the police officer with a numerical value that in most jurisdictions is alone ground for a DUI or DWI conviction. Yet to most criminal defendants, their lawyers, and even the police officer who used the breathalyzer machine, it's not entirely clear how the breathalyzer provided that particular result. So in the paper, I provide three main examples of such conviction programs. In addition to breathalyzers, I talk about automated fingerprint identification systems, otherwise known as APHISes, and also probabilistic genotyping systems, which are basically more complex statistical DNA analyses. While there are many different types of tools that I categorize as conviction programs, I focus on these three because they all suffer from some real questions about accuracy, and there are certainly many more such conviction programs out there. I want to follow up on that point that you just ended on, because in your paper, you note that conviction programs such as breathalyzers, which you discussed, that they're fundamentally different than prediction programs that we discussed, and they're actually more troubling. So why is that? There are a few reasons why I think that conviction programs are more troubling than prediction programs. The first is that, for some reason, they don't seem to have received as much scrutiny. I don't explicitly talk about this in the paper, but this is perhaps because they've evolved in a somewhat different fashion than prediction programs and during different periods of time. Another reason I think conviction programs are more troubling, and this is debatable, is I think that more is at stake with respect to a conviction than something like bail, sentencing, or parole. While all these issues can relate to a defendant's liberty or even his life, with an erroneous conviction, we are talking about a completely innocent person being found guilty and punished accordingly. With an unjust sentence or parole, presumably the person is guilty and is just getting more than he deserves. Of course, that's a terrible outcome, but at least it's not a tax on an innocent person. With respect to a bail decision, you might deny an innocent person liberty, but that's generally much more of a temporary deprivation than one following a conviction. 
Now, much of my work is in the area of sentencing law, so I get into a little bit of trouble with my colleagues when suggesting that an erroneous conviction decision is more troublesome than an erroneous sentencing decision. And certainly for some defendants, particularly for guilty defendants, the sentencing decision may be more significant. But I think that type one error, a false positive, is really more concerning in the conviction context. Further, there's yet another reason why I think conviction programs are more concerning than prediction programs. And that's because conviction programs have an air of scientific validity to them. Prosecutors and forensic scientists generally present this evidence as having 100% level of certainty, or at least very near certainty. And conviction programs are generally thought of as being backed by the hard sciences. Prediction programs, in contrast, are presented as based on social science, and they're generally presented as attempting to predict the future, which pretty clearly involves some uncertainty, rather than providing concrete facts. So this is another reason why I think we ought to be even more concerned about conviction programs than prediction programs. Coming now to the heart of your paper, you suggest that computer programs have played an especially disconcerting role in court because of these intertwined concerns about reliability and secrecy, and you've discussed a little bit of that already. But if you would, walk us through it again. How are those elements working together in this context? Well, as I explained in the paper, there are real questions about the accuracy of conviction programs. For example, prosecutors are presenting DNA match evidence that's been generated by secret probabilistic genotyping systems, basically complex statistical analyses of DNA samples. But for example, in one case, using different probabilistic genotyping systems produced totally different results. One program suggested that there was a DNA match in the case, and the other program suggested that there was no such match. So clearly, there are real accuracy issues here. But in a lot of cases, it's difficult to figure out whether these tools are accurate or not. The private companies that produce these programs don't want to divulge the details of the programs because disclosing them would mean that competitors could potentially steal the source code and algorithms that power the programs and thus copy the programs and compete with these companies. And for the most part, judges haven't ordered discovery of the algorithms or source codes in these cases for this reason. All this means that no independent person or entity really has the chance to check the source code or algorithms to get into the validity of the programs and the results that they produce. Because companies are keeping the program secret, there's really little opportunity to adequately test these programs. Let's loop around now to the issue of breathalyzers, which you introduced earlier. How are accuracy and secrecy concerns at play there? Yes, breathalyzers are another example. So breathalyzers have been around longer than probabilistic genotyping systems, but there still seem to be errors produced with breathalyzers, or at least some breathalyzers. In New Jersey, for example, when the source code of a particular breathalyzer, and I'm using the term breathalyzer as a generic term here, when that was disclosed for litigation purposes, errors were found. And it was discovered that, at least under certain conditions, the breathalyzer could provide erroneous results. But still, it's rare for such independent review of the programs to take place. This was a rarity, sort of, in New Jersey. In this context, too, judges generally don't order discovery because of the concern for the program developer's financial interests and its proprietary algorithms and source codes. It's really concerning. So let's zero in on that issue of secrecy here. So how are the concerns you identify about secret conviction programs similar and, and even perhaps dissimilar to concerns about secrecy in other areas of the law. 
So the secrecy associated with conviction programs, as well as with prediction programs, seems to be a growing trend, I think, in the criminal law, something that's really starting to trouble me. In recent years, we've seen secrecy surrounding FISA court warrants, uh, secrecy related to government informants, and secrecy about the drugs used to execute people. Pair this with the traditional secrecy of grand jury proceedings and the pervasive plea bargaining that happens behind closed doors today, and we sure have a lot of secrecy within the criminal justice system, a system that's supposed to be accountable to the public. I'm actually working on a paper right now that examines these different dimensions of secrecy throughout the criminal justice system, because I've really started to think that is very troubling. And Megan, do you have a sense of why defense attorneys, perhaps to this point, aren't strenuously objecting to secret evidence in the courtroom? You know, why don't they challenge a prosecutor's reliance on this type of evidence? Well, I think there are a few reasons why we don't see more challenges to the secret evidence. First, criminal defense attorneys are generally overworked and underpaid, which means it's difficult for them to make very robust defenses and innovative challenges in most cases. Further, many criminal defense attorneys, like most lawyers, take the so-called scientific evidence at face value. It takes quite a bit of expertise to understand these complex programs or to even understand what one does not understand about these programs. Without such understanding, it's really difficult to make these challenges. Additionally, where lawyers have challenged this evidence, they've been spectacularly unsuccessful. Judges generally aren't open to these challenges, and it's also difficult to find experts who can successfully counter the prosecution's evidence, either because a judge limits their testimony because they don't have sufficient experience with or knowledge of the program, or because they have little to say because they haven't been given any access to the program. So these are some real problems. You also suggest that these secret programs might have constitutional implications. Uh, so let's start here with the issue of, say, due process. So how might computer programs in the courtroom be in tension with a defendant's due process rights? Due process is, of course, a broad concept that's often focused on fairness. And not allowing defendants to see the evidence that's convicting them seems to really be unfair. More specifically, there are several Supreme Court cases explaining that defendants have a due process right to have a meaningful opportunity to present a defense. These cases cover slightly different contexts, but I think their reasoning is applicable. Again, denying defendants access to how evidence against them is being generated seems to be exactly what this right to have a chance to make a defense is aimed at. What about the confrontation clause here? How might these secret conviction programs perhaps violate the Sixth Amendment? Sure. The due process cases I've been looking at explain that this right to make a defense is closely related to the Confrontation Clause. Now, the court's Confrontation Clause cases in recent years haven't been a beacon of clarity, but the cases seem to suggest that out-of-court statements that are testimonial in nature should not be admissible at trial unless the declarant was unavailable to testify and the defendant had an opportunity prior to this for cross-examination. Now, in my view, these programs are producing testimonial statements about a defendant's guilt. Yet the program user, for example, the police officer using the breathalyzer machine, won't have much useful to say about the inner workings of the breathalyzer. Instead, one would need to cross-examine the program's creator to discern how exactly the program works. This is ordinarily not the practice today, thus creating what I think amounts to a Sixth Amendment violation. What about a defendant's access to evidence? Are these secret conviction programs in tension, say, with Brady? 
Sure. Under Brady, prosecutors have an obligation to turn over to the defense material exculpatory or impeachment evidence favorable to the defendant. Now, there are limits on the reach of this rule, but it extends beyond just what the prosecutor himself has knowledge of. The prosecutor is also generally charged with knowledge of exculpatory information that, for example, police officers have as well. Even though prosecutors generally don't have access to the algorithms or source codes underlying these conviction programs, the programs are acting on the government's behalf to help convict the defendant. Accordingly, I think there's some tension here. I think the prosecutors really ought to turn over this evidence, but they generally, because of their agreements with these private conviction program developers, don't have the details of these programs, which is really problematic. Last question, Megan. What's next for the literature here? What type of paper would shed some more insight on this issue? I think there's still a lot to do here. Currently, I'm in the process, actually, of submitting for publication an article that's discussing how recent changes in IP law have pushed these private program developers away from disclosing their work in exchange for patent protection to building up greater walls of secrecy for trade secret protection for their programs. So in the paper, I suggest, among other things, that courts should really consider the public interest impacts of their IP decisions, impacts beyond the traditional considerations in IP law, and something which we see very little of right now. Also, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on a broader paper tackling the difficult topic of secrecy that's increasingly cloaking broad swaths of the criminal justice system. I think it's important to re-examine when such secrecy is appropriate in a system that is a creature of the public and that constitutionally contemplates the public to monitor the system. I'd also like to see someone look more closely at the evidentiary rules and their impact on this area of law. So I think there's a lot of work that can be done in this area. Megan, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. So in my mind, Megan's fascinating and insightful paper really offers us an opportunity just to step back and observe a clear emerging trend in the literature. Computer programs and algorithms, they're playing an increasingly prominent role in our legal system. That's undeniable. And we've recently seen some brilliant papers starting to address this topic. Of course, we'll begin with Megan's paper itself. So it's not really hard to imagine the widespread adoption of even more prediction or conviction programs, to borrow her words. And I think the portion of Megan's paper that discusses the constitutional implications of this evidence is going to be immensely important in the years to come. We've also seen, though, a number of scholars just starting to think about the implications of computer programs in the evidence space. You'll recall that at the end of my conversation with Megan when I asked her about what might be next for the literature, this is where she saw a lot of room for discussion. And we're absolutely starting to see that with a lot of emerging papers. Here, for example, we have Andrea Roth's amazing piece on machine testimony, and my recent piece with Ed Chang, Beyond the Witness, which both suggest that in certain circumstances, the Confrontation Clause should effectively be reconceptualized to handle machine-based or process-based evidence. Last fall, we heard on this podcast about Emily Murphy's fascinating new work on brain-based imaging. There, the conversation centered around what challenges might arise with the computer programs and the algorithms that are associated with those brain scans. Ed M. Winkleried, too, has been on this podcast to discuss his piece on computer source code. 
Watch this space for more insightful papers in the years to come. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, and I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>